0: Yeah, I definitely see in my clinic people who are suffering from being over available, I think is the main thing, especially in the workplace, not being able to create boundaries between their emails and their messages and uh their their personal life their private life and sometimes in the pandemic uh, that happened last year and in this year it's continued that that um trajectory because people are expected to be available all the time and there's no mental space there's no switch off time
1: welcome to the happy pair podcast
0: Woo!
1: Sorry if that Good hurt one, your ears. Uh, yeah, no, we're delighted to have you and thanks for all your feedback on social media. We're most grateful and we're really delighted you've appreciated the other episodes. So this you. week you're in for a real treat. Uh, this is our friend, the wonderful Dr. Gemma Newman. We got to meet Gemma probably back about four years ago. We were first invited out to Tuscany to do a demo at one of Rich Roll's retreats. And we met Gemma there and Gemma is a very vibrant, wonderful, outspoken medical doctor that has a wonderful holistic approach to health. Uh, yeah, th- this conversation was beautiful. I feel deeply nourished after it genuinely. And we talked about the importance of regenerative agriculture. We talked about love, the importance of gratitude and love as yeah, part of a healthy. Things, two things I I didn't think we we're going to talk about. I think we we're going to talk about vegetables and the importance of plants, but we talked about so much more that in your diet there should be lots of love and gratitude. We talked about our relationship with yourself. We talked about nature. And one thing which I was very interested was technology and how she sees this with her patients and how it's in, impacting people's health. It was really inspiring. Uh, Gemma has been involved in a number of courses. She's been involved in our Happy Skin course and our recent Happy Mind course. She is brilliant. She is amazing. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as much as we did. Uh, so welcome, Gemma Newman. Great to have you. Thank you. Well, Thank you interim, for that's having that's me. <laughs> well, that, that was it. Like I just thought just to go in nice and easy. Okay, we sure. could do something more dramatic if you prefer.
0: It's fine. You know well, what? I'm do happy to do with the
1: intro. i <laughs> will <laughs> go to do the intro before. I'll I'll do the drum you. roll. Drum roll. Drum roll. Uh, well, Great to have you, Gemma. And as we were saying, you look fantastic. Your hair looks great. And that was because you got a new hairdryer.
0: It is. I'm very proud of it. And it's one of the few electrical items that I actually use. So that's <laughs> good.
1: Oh, that's pretty cool. Practical lady.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. How are you boys?
1: Ah, you're great. Yeah, lovely. Lovely. Doing our best. Doing our best. Um. yeah, so, so great to have you. Maybe first place to start, okay, is uh. do you want to tell us a bit of like, for anyone that doesn't know you, we've known you for years, you're wonderful, you're a fantastic doctor, but you're so much more in so many different ways. But for someone that is, this is their first touch point of view, could you give a little bit of context of, you know, your backstory, to, like a, a kind of little, you know.
0: Yeah, of course, why not? So I, I knew from a young age that I wanted to be, a doctor, either that or a Blue Peter presenter. But in the end, I chose medicine. And I, I was really excited about the idea of helping people. That was my main motivation. And when I finished med school, I was so enthusiastic. And um, I thought I would be saving lives every day. As it turned out, you know, it's not always that way. And I felt like my medical training was fantastic for helping people in acute situations where they'd had an accident or they needed surgery. Um, But my chosen profession was actually general practice because I really wanted to get to know people and their families over the course of time. And I began to realise that actually a lot of the procedures and protocols that I followed Although they made sense and there's a lot of evidence behind them, quite often I was just watching people deteriorate over time and doing my best to try and sort of dampen down those flames, but actually not really putting the fire out. And so I delved deeper, you know, after the medical training that I did, I studied uh, CBT, psychology, solution-focused brief therapeutic approaches. I studied nutrition, nutrition. And, you know, I began to see that there were so many ways in which people could feel better, so many ways that they could learn to help themselves if they had the right tools. And that became my absolute passion. And, you know, it helped, I think, that I had a grandmother who was so inspirational to me. She studied medicine at a time when women were really barely even allowed to go to university. And I was also really inspired by my husband because he helped to point me towards plant-based nutrition through his marathon training and his own discoveries. And he's not medical. So I felt this strong need to really try and understand why he was doing so well with plant-based nutrition. And that's why I started my Instagram account. I started my website because I wanted the world to know the power of plants.
1: Good one. I like that. Very good. Uh, and and so you've been kind of like, do you with your patients that come in in day in and day out with colds and flus and whatnot, do you try to bring them round towards the power of eating more plant based or how do you deal with it on a day to day basis?
0: Day to day, I listen. That is my first job. I have to listen to what people come to me with and see what they need from me. Nine times out of 10, there will be some sort of opportunity to discuss how their lives are impacting their illness. And so in the context of that discussion, I usually do bring up the power of plants, but I make sure that it's something they're interested in because, you know, nobody likes to be told what to do. (laughs) And so, you know, in, in the past before I learned the consultation skills necessary to be a doctor, even as a medical student, I found it really frustrating because I would have placements with with uh, patients and I'd say, well, why don't they just listen and do what the doctor's telling them? And of course, it's human nature that we have so much more to us and we need to feel as though we are um, listened to and understood in order to connect and in order to make changes. So I listen first and foremost, and then usually the rest comes from there. As long as I ask them, are you interested to find out more? What do you imagine for your life? How do you see yourself in the next year? What are you looking forward to doing? Quite often they'll come up with a lot of the solutions themselves. And then it gives me the chance to help them kind of shift into that direction if they, if they want to.
1: That sounds more like a guide. Yeah, love that. Like I remember when I went to see John Alman, You'd know John. Ah, oh, uh, he's lovely. I, decided, I just decided. Ah, I is go John for it? a doctor, Steve? John's a doctor. Sorry, a doctor, a doctor friend. And I, I remember driving to Sutton. It was a big, big deal for me. I drove for an hour to go to see the doctor just for a checkup. And I remember sitting with John, and the first thing he asked me is, "Tell me about your relationships." And I was like, "Wow, this is quite a different approach. This is very multifaceted, as opposed to symptomatic, as so often medicine can be. What's the problem?" this is a solution as opposed to actually looking at the cause so I was quite impressed with that so hearing you talk about the desire to listen first of all and understand the context I really admire
0: Thank you I think he is a doctor after my own heart because he understands that the root of a lot of the illnesses that we face are in the ways that we Perceive the world that we have been treated and the decisions that we make around those things. And, you know, sometimes it's really tough because there are people, I've got patients who have very little autonomy over what they're doing day to day. Some of them can't even afford an oven, uh, let alone a decent fridge freezer or, you know, pots and pans to to cook. So you have to understand the context with which your, your patient comes to you. And that's the same in life. I think you have to understand. In any kind of interaction, like what what they're coming with and what they want from you, and uh, and see where you can meet in the middle.
1: Mm, yeah. Sounds like every relationship it's kind of contextual and trying to meet people where they are. Yeah, yeah. I I I really admire that you're talking more about the softer aspect of medicine because often medicine or allopathic medicine, at least in recent years has been quite, you know, symptomatic, as in just trying to deal with the symptom, whereas I I think I really admire the fact that you're looking at the greater lifestyle aspect, kind of the sense of what, what people are perceiving, health, what way they see the world, and trying to address it in that context.
0: Yeah, Um, it's, it's actually really difficult to do in medicine because we have to look for specific answers. If we're going to figure out whether a treatment works, we have to be really specific when it comes to researching it, doing studies on it, trying to rule out all the other variables so that you can really home in on what it is that's actually working. But of course, that's not how life works. Life works in synergy. So many things come together to make a situation that we're in, whether it's food, whether it's wellness, whether it's illness, there are so many different factors. And I think probably for me, it's partly because I've got a passion for general practice. You kind of have to know a little bit of everything to piece it together. Um, and I love the analogy. I, I saw this image of a load of doctors blindfolded and they were touching an elephant. And, you know, one doctor touched the trunk and said that it was a tree and one doctor touched the tusk and said that it was, um, oh, I can't remember what they said it was now, but you know, you get the picture. They thought that each part of the elephant were different things like a rope or a tree Um um, but actually, you just take a step back, or you take off the blindfold, and you realise the elephant in the room, which is that we're not dealing with the, the whole of people's problems, um, or indeed the root causes of them. So, yeah, it's something that I'm really passionate about, and I think a lot of GPs hopefully see that things that way as well, because in our
1: training, it's not just about disease; it's about trying to see the whole person. And in terms, of, in terms of on that on that exact kind of theme. Like, if you were to sum up, like, the majority of patients that come to you, there's probably a root cause that if you could kind of almost give a recipe for well-being, because, you know, the way you get patients when they're sick, but if you could kind of prescribe a magic wand with a recipe for well-being. Like, even in your new be- book, you call it a prescription for health. I thought that was a lovely analogy. Yeah, it really Aww. is. And, and if you could put it into a recipe, because I've often heard... You know, I remember listening to Dan Buettner, the Blue Zones guy, and he was saying, well, a prescription for long life from all the research was if he was to put it into a cake recipe, he said, well, you'd work kind of part time three to five days a week. You'd have a nap every day. You know, you'd spend seven hours around people that you enjoy. And it was kind of like a recipe. It was like, oh, that was good. So if you could like, if you're looking at all your patients, if you could kind of sum up wellness into a cake recipe was obviously not a cake
0: I tell you, I can't think of a cake recipe off the top of my head, but what I can tell you is I made up a, a kind of a, an acronym that helps people realise what's important for health. And you may have heard it. I've mentioned it a couple of times, although I haven't written it in the book. It's gloves. Um, so gloves being standing for gratitude, love. Um, organic, which is a nod to um, having regenerative techniques in agriculture, which we can come back to V for vegetables, E for exercise and S for sleep. Now, I believe that those words, gratitude and love especially, are the beginning of a, a recipe, if you like, for creating the life that you desire. And of course, we know that food plays a huge role in wellness and well-being, and it's usually people's entry point. And I'm sure you guys have experienced that in your career as you know, food and nourishing the body is a wonderful entry point to other ways in which to feel better. I don't think it's necessarily the most important way, but it's the way that people tend to focus on the most and it's the way that tends to get the fastest results. So, yes, that's what I would say. Gratitude, love, uh, regenerative agriculture, vegetables,
1: exercise and sleep. That's beautiful, I love that. beautiful. And, and like, you know, the way, so it starts with gratitude and love, two kind of less measurable and quantifiable terms. Like, is it kind of consciously that those two are at the top? Like if it was a priority list, You know, if it was a priority list, would gratitude and love be at the front or would you have vegetables first or would you have sleep first? Or is it just a (laughs) cacophony, a perfect symphony of all of them? Um, I would put
0: gratitude and love at the very top. And that's why they're at the beginning, because, you know, it's really hard to always feel um, grateful when things don't go our way, when our life seems awful, when terrible things happen. And I wanted it to really kind of encompass the fact that we don't have to always think yes my life is amazing we don't have to falsely think positively Um, but it's more of a way of reminding ourselves to recognize the blessings in our lives wherever our lives are at right now and the ways in which we can feel truly connected to our higher self or to nature or to all of the things that we can see, hear, taste, touch, whatever it is, that bring us a certain quality of life. And it's usually possible for almost everybody to feel grateful for something, but it's quite hard to you know unless you consciously think about it for many people it's easy to slip into negative thought patterns and when we slip into negative recurring ruminations it can lead us down a darker path and we can feel less good in ourselves and you know that lower mood can then lead to sort of less beneficial decisions for our health and so i think that gratitude and love for yourself love for your body love for everything that you are grateful for are really the cornerstones of beginning to understand well
1: being wow i love that do do you have any do you have any can can i yeah yeah like like, uh, some way that i often interpret gratitude is it makes you more present like you're focused on what you have because often so much of our social media led and our media led lives is about comparison and it's often said comparison is a thief of happiness or something like that. And I think what gratitude really does cultivate is a sense of acceptance of what we have here and now and the ability to make the most of it. It's it's hard, though. It's it's challenging.
0: It's hard, but it's, it's a practice because the more we focus on the things that we have and the things that we're grateful for, the more we receive. And the more we think about and focus on the things that we don't have and the things that we lack, the more that we lose. And it's a simple equation, but it's really difficult for our thinking mind, our conscious mind to understand. But it's it's really very powerful. If we can switch that, if we can switch that to a feeling of gratitude, then everything else can flow from there and it's difficult like you know it's not like um it's the only way to to ever feel better and people have very real problems in their lives but i think as you say with social media with the modern world it's so easy to compare what we have and what we don't have with other people and their highlight reels and we know that's not that's not reality. And so, yeah, I think creating a better reality for yourself has to start with thankfulness for all the things that you have already.
1: And what are, what are ways that if someone's listening and they kind of go, okay, gratitude, I've never really done this. It sounds great. I came across that woman's book, The Secret. I know I want to do something about it. How would someone go about cultivating more gratitude? Like, you know, if you've never really been into this before?
0: Well, I think for those of us who are logical thinkers and start with start with a thought before a feeling, then one of the easiest ways of doing it is to decide to keep a gratitude journal where you actually physically write down some of the things that you think about that you're grateful for. And the first thing that most of us can feel grateful for is our breath. It's with us from the moment that we're born until the moment that we die. It's free, it's easily available, it's accessible. We can be grateful for the fact that we can breathe in and breathe out. And even doing that can actually bring an awful lot of peace um, because as you guys know, when we breathe efficiently, when we breathe consciously, often it's a great way of accessing that parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and renew. And it's a way of stimulating the vagus nerve as it attaches to the diaphragm as we breathe efficiently, and it really helps to calm us down. And that means it's much easier for us to then think about some of the blessings that we have. So that could be a very first place to start, and it doesn't take much of an effort. It's a, it's an easy thing to start with.
1: And it's probably like a muscle that the more you flex it, the stronger it gets. Yeah,
0: exactly. The more it becomes a habit, the easier it becomes. And then it becomes second nature. And then what's lovely is if you actually do it out loud, that can almost strengthen the effect of it. Is if you actually, you know, you might feel silly if there's someone around you, but who cares? You basically just say out loud, I am so thankful that... I am so grateful for. And, you know, if you've got a family, if you've got kids and they hear you, then they might feel inspired to do it as well. It might shift the way that they perceive the world, which is so crucial because kids are like sponges. So, you know, it's, it's just a really nice way of living with intention and also modelling the kind of behaviour that you hope for your
1: family as well. I love this, Gem. I feel very grateful for this conversation right now. Oh, yes. <laughs> it, it, it made me think of. It made me think of, I walk, like when we leave the house, me and my girl, when we leave the house and go for a walk, like I'll, I'll, I'll nearly always, I'll say, geez, a lovely day. And then the other day, Elsie said, Daddy, you say it's a lovely day, even if it's raining. You know? <laughs> She's noticed. <laughs> anyway, I don't listen to you anymore, Daddy. Um, Gemma can I talk about what you mentioned there I think it was the Gloves Oh organic organic. Um, I I remember Maybe it was a couple of years ago I remember Maybe it was a year ago You did a post about The nutrient loss in fruit And that True kind of soil degradation And soil erosion A lot of the fruit that we consume Or food that we consume Has less nutrients than it did Back say 20 years ago And it was something to do with oranges It was like 20 years ago Or like 30 years ago the vitamin C in one orange, you would now have to eat 20 to get the same amount of vitamin C. It was something like that. I remember that analogy. I saw it. And Stephen's totally into organic soil. And I'm, I'm like, just fascinated. I, I watched uh, Kiss the Earth this morning and I was looking at Zach Bush's uh, Farmer's Footprint yesterday and just reading you about Tell You me soil. you were working this morning. What were you doing watching documentaries. I was. I'm learning about soil. But I'm just wondering, could you talk about that, the nutrient loss of soil and the importance of soil? Because it's something that is often... Not addressed, not associated with health. People, we take it for granted. We don't show gratitude towards the very thing that can sustain so much of life.
0: Yeah, that's a really lovely way of putting it. And it's an area where there's still a lot of emerging research. So, I suppose what I should say before we start on this conversation is that a lot of the research around the health benefits of a healthy plant-rich diet are done on conventionally grown fruits and vegetables. So the fruits and vegetables that will have naturally had um, tillage, agriculture and pesticide use in order to grow it. So I think one of the things that people get quite upset about when we talk about things like organic versus non-organic is the idea that it can be somehow elitist, that people who who can't afford to buy organic uh, produce are missing out somehow. So I thought it's probably worth me caveating this conversation that I'm having with you by saying that Many of the studies show that eating fruits and vegetables and a lovely variety of fruits and vegetables is one of the key things that we can do for health. And it doesn't matter how it's grown. If you if you can't afford to buy something that um, has been grown locally or organically or regeneratively, just buy what you can and use what you can and you will get loads and loads of health benefits. So I should probably just say that before we start, but what i you know began to realize over the course of the last few years is that the way that we grow food is really important because you know having sort of spoken to regenerative agriculture professors and people um, for whom this is a really important area of research we need to change how we grow food in order to be able to continue to grow food for the next generation and the generation after that when we have a um, tillage heavy and pesticide heavy way of growing food it means that all of the natural ecosystems have been disrupted so In some ways, it's actually not even necessarily as important to buy organic as it would be to think about how you buy regeneratively. So if you've got the mental bandwidth to think about this, if you've got the budget to think about this, try and see if you can get to know local farmers um, or people that are local to you who are growing regeneratively, which means not using tillage agriculture and minimizing their use of pesticides. What I've began to realize is actually it's the tillage of the soil, which is one of the one of the major things that can actually contribute to complete um, disruption of the ecosystem, because you've got these fungal networks within the soil that help to maintain its structure. And these fungal networks are called mycorrhizae. And when you use uh, tillage agriculture, you are you are ripping up all of those fungal networks, which means that the next time the rain falls, you're going to be washing away a load of topsoil. And this happens time and again, that the more you till the soil, the more that you dredge up the soil, the more that you rip apart those fungal networks, the more topsoil you lose year on year, which means that you then have to use more pesticides because you think, oh, well, it's not growing. I need to protect it from predators. I need to keep using these pesticides. But actually... If you stop tilling the soil and you do things like uh, cover crops and you rotate your crops, it actually allows the soil to regenerate itself and it gives you, you know, in time, it gives you a far more abundant soil. You know, if the soil is healthy, there are more microbes in it than you know in our entire galaxy, which I think is amazing. When I when I heard somebody say that, I thought, wow. But it really makes sense that you need a very microbe-rich soil in order to grow um, healthy foods, and the same with earthworms. Earthworms are amazing; they fix nitrogen for us, and they help provide their, their casts. The worm casts produce really great nutrients for our soil. But when you're tilling it, when you are ripping up those networks, you're also ripping up the earthworms, which is another way of actually degrading the soil. So it's actually a lot more complicated than just the organic versus non-organic because many regenerative farmers don't necessarily have organic certification or they may not grow in exactly the same way that you know you're supposed to grow if you are solely organic and also there are various pesticides that are used natural pesticides um, that if you you know if you grow organically could still potentially be harmful in excess so bottom line is actually what's most important is in going back to nature is to make sure that you are maintaining the integrity of the soil by minimizing pesticide use but also by maximising the structure and the function of that soil. So you're not killing the earthworms and you're not killing those fungal networks.
1: Wow. wow. And it's like, it's, it's focusing on an essence and div- diversity and trying to encourage as much biodiversity and as much vibrancy in the soil. Because in essence, it isn't it true saying that most, pretty much all our nutrition comes from the soil and the health of the soil dictates largely the health of the food that we consume. And with the erosion of topsoil, the erosion of nutritious food for humans and the erosion of life, even Steve was he. he... But just carbon. Like, I, I guess another thing that I became much more aware of is the ability of soil to function as a reservoir for carbon. And as soon as we till the soil, as you mentioned, it's releasing carbon into the atmosphere as opposed to sequestering it or, re- or storing it um, as it has that wonderful capacity to do.
0: Yeah, and it's it's incredible to think about how, you know, just simple things like planting more trees or starting legume crops, like basically growing legumes, you know, in the UK uh, and in Ireland is an incredible way of actually sequestering carbon. And you know, it's something that's so potentially so easy. And you know, I I don't want to um I don't want people to feel that, you know, farmers are the bad guy. I think farmers are absolute agricultural superheroes. It is really hard to grow food and, you know, we need to support our farmers in this incredible skill and we need to support them as best we can to go back to these regenerative practices and hopefully provide financial incentives for them to do so, so that we can feed our children and our children's children um, and you know it's it's becoming really challenging because I mean some stats vary. Um, people dispute the stats around you know when all the topsoil will be gone. Do we have fifty years? Do we have sixty? Do we have a hundred? But the fact is that the trajectory isn't looking good. So we need to act now to make some shifts. And I hope that I hope that we do.
1: Wow. and and essentially, can I just I'm just going to say something, and then you can jump in with a question. I was going to say that essentially for anyone listening, like. You know, I've been getting my head around regenerative agriculture for a while. And essentially it's like, you know, when you see fields that are tilled, they're brown and they look like the perfect kind of farm fields, that's not necessarily good because the rainwater comes in and it washes away a lot of topsoil. And we've only got a finite amount of topsoil and it takes 500 years to for topsoil to be created. Um, and regenerative agriculture is just keeping ground cover over it because once you keep crops in between and grow amongst them and, Types that it's much more efficient in terms of creating good soil and keeping good soil for future generations. Is that a good explanation? Yeah, that's pretty Thanks, good. Geez. Very
0: good. Yeah, that's and good
1: one of the Thanks, things, guys. That I
0: <laughs> one of the things that I learned recently from Professor Amir Kasam, who is a professor of regenerative agriculture. He was sharing that we don't actually need to push biomass through cattle in order to regeneratively farm. I think a lot of the messaging around, you know, having to um, involve uh, grass-fed uh, cows and beef in regenerative agriculture actually slightly misses the mark, which I was quite surprised by because my assumption was that you needed to to push it through the animal in order to, you know, get the manure which would then nourish the soil, but actually uh professor kasam told me that the main reason why people use cattle to, in order to um uh undertake regenerative uh, practices is for financial purposes so that they can actually you know get um Money for the beef that they are rearing. And it's not actually necessary um, to do that. And in fact, it can actually have a a potential negative impact overall on carbon sequestration, which I was really surprised by. um, Because, you know, a lot of the main messaging around things like Kiss the Ground are that, you know, you need to have these grazing animals in order for it to work. Uh, But apparently, that's not necessarily the case, which is interesting. Um, And it kind of, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have them if people want to have them, but it's not necessarily part of the answer I think as you've rightly pointed out the main sort of thing that we need to focus on is avoiding tillage crop rotation cover crops those three things will be really really helpful in reducing the need for pesticides moving forward and as you say helping to create diversity helping helping to um, create a situation where you know we're not losing species of animals because we're killing off all the microbes and you know all of the bugs that we, we used to be seeing. I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember as a child, I'd often see bugs kind of <laughs> on my windscreen, my parents' windscreen wipers when we would drive around, like dead bugs, but you don't see them anymore. And I think, you know, I'm sure a lot of that is to do with the fact that we're, we're using so many pesticides. And I think that there are definitely upstream consequences that we haven't yet realised and the research hasn't caught up with. Because although these things don't actually directly affect us, they must affect our microbes. And we're only beginning to touch the surface uh, in terms of microbiome research as to how that could affect our health
1: long term. Wow, I love that. Gemma, in terms of, so our microbiome, the collection of bacteria in our small intestine, like often it's to be healthier is to have a greater variety and a greater diversity. And we're often deemed to be 1% human, 99% bacteria. So we're really at the mercy and the faith of these bacteria. They're like such a part of our health. And similarly, it's the soil. Can you talk about the relationship between or the link even between our microbiome and the kind of mic- the microbiome that is within the soil? Can I add one thing to that? I was just going to say that uh, Steve is often... Now, he read this like chef book years ago and he's been quoting this like paragraph editor for about four years now. And it was about... That there was links between middle America when they started, you know, the Dust Bowl when they were planting all the wheat and the soil ero- soil quality started eroding because of all the monocultures and all the consistent of the same type of crops. And this, there was lots of research showing that as the soil biodiversity decreased and the quality of the soil decreased, economic prosperity decreased in a very similar correlation. And uh, it was a very interesting kind of study. And I guess, I think I think Stephen's question is about the link between our own personal health and the link between soil and all of us, have, all both of them having a bacterial element to it.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And it's an area that we are beginning to understand more about. But I think as humans, we're so we're so arrogant, aren't we? We think that we know everything. And I think that's potentially also true of people like me, doctors, you know, we think that we know everything there is to know. But actually, the way I see it is you're absolutely right. We have a very um, strong link between the macro and the micro. And a lot of that we don't yet understand. You know, when the Dust Bowl happened, that was only a couple of generations ago. And these people were literally starving because they couldn't grow food. And you know, we, you know, I'm not saying that we're in that situation just yet, but we need to hopefully learn some lessons from the past and understand that, you know, when we till the soil and when we over overuse pesticides on the soil, that it's going to have consequences further down the line. And we're seeing that in human health. I think over the, you know, especially over the last uh, couple of decades, you know, we're seeing a lot more in the way of things like autoimmune issues um, and. It's hard because I can't make any direct correlations between the quality of our soil and the increased incidence of autoimmune issues. But I feel like there probably is a link because of that microbiome connection. Because you know we use our microbes within us for so many different um, sort of bodily processes. It would seem completely illogical that over the course of time there would be no impact on us, and on the wider ecosystem, you know, just as just as the micro is connected to the macro in terms of the soil and our microbes and us. So we are connected to the planet, which is another macro system entirely, but it's all linked. And we're seeing with excess animal agriculture, a huge um, crisis and antibiotic resistance. I was worried about antibiotic resistance long before we had a pandemic. And I believe that the pandemic, based on you know the research that we have, is also really strongly linked to how we use and misuse environments and animals. And so for me, it's really frustrating to think, you know, the UN tells us that in about 20 years, I think by 20, uh, maybe 30 years, by 2050, we'll have 10 million excess deaths from antibiotic resistant infections in humans because the antibiotics that we are now using will become ineffective. And you know, I really want something to be done about this. And I think that one of the main ways in which we're actually exposed to um, antibiotics is actually through the meat that we eat. Um, Yes, I prescribe them when they're needed and I prescribe them to my patients. But the main way that we ingest it is actually through our food. And people don't know that. And again, it's bringing that macro problem down to the micro. We're killing off our own microbes and we're creating multi-antibiotic resistant microbes through our meddling, if you like, with the natural order of things. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong, I really am very grateful for things like antibiotics. And I suppose also, if you think about it in terms of plants, pesticides, because they have been very useful at stabilising our food supply and at preventing infections. You know, our average lifespan is about seven years longer now since since the antibiotic era. But you can take too much of a good thing too far and I think especially when it comes to human health and antibiotic use and antibiotic use in, in the animal agriculture industry there are going to be massive long term ramifications if we don't start to change it and so yeah I think it's a really big issue for
1: us to think about Geez, this is amazing I'm really enjoying this. This, this so we're gone really really big here and I love it I absolutely love it if you could okay here's one for you if you were kind of like you know could wave a, wave a magic wand and as you said like in the last generations, like, you know, antibiotics have served an incredible role and as a pesticides and looking forward now for the next kind of 50 years or for, say, for the duration of our own lives, you know, yours and ours, the next whatever, 50, 100 years, however long we all get to live. Like, what would things you would like to see in terms of the health in general and society and how we can become more healthier? That's a well, very good I... one now
0: it's a broad one but i love it and the number one thing i'm thinking of is i would love for people to learn um how connected we are to each other and to nature and on a practical level i think what that would look like is for government subsidies to start to um, help farmers to grow uh, fruits and vegetables in a more regenerative way and in order to uh, pay landowners or farmers or whoever it is um, <laughs> that owns the land that we could use for planting more trees I would love for people to um, be more aware of the ways in which the oceans help to support um, planetary ecosystems and reduce fisheries make sure that you know sustainable fisheries are something that can actually be put into practice you know, there are so many practical things that I would love to happen right now. Um, I think that the fake meat industry is something that I have mixed feelings about, but ultimately I understand that it has to be something that that is really kind of prioritised moving forward because many people don't like the idea of changing their eating habits, and so you know that's going to be another part of the of the equation. It's 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 really amazing. I think for so long when people talk about sort of being kind to the environment. They think about not using plastic straws or having to get solar panels on their house or having to buy an electric car. And it all seems a little bit either, you know sort of difficult or uh, somehow a bit earnest or just not them but people don't realize that the biggest thing that they can do on an individual basis is to eat more plants and the rest of it can go from there it's the cheapest intervention as well so i think on a on a personal level eating more plants is great on a policy level i think we have to really prioritize regenerative agriculture and subsidies where they where they're needed
1: here here Yes, please. Where do, we, where do we vote for you, Gemma? <laughs> that's a great... Br- I, I I, yeah, let's do it! Hey, no, um, let's Gem- do this thing! <laughs> that's
0: why I- I'm so passionate. You guys, you know how passionate I am. And, and I think that, you know, you guys as well, you're doing tremendous things. You have a, an entire community of people that you are bringing to greater health and awareness of how connected they are to this planet. So thank you both for all the things that you do. I really, really appreciate and love you both.
1: Oh, Thank you, Gemma. Right, you, right back times, at you, Gemma. genuinely. Can, can I ask? Can I ask a quick question just on the topic of nature? Because I think nature is something that nowadays, during this pandemic, we've all learned to appreciate even more. Because you're trapped inside, you can't go out, you can't travel. Many of us are learning to explore our own backyard. We often joke in Ireland: most people know Spain better than they do than their own backyard. And I'm sure it's the same um, in the UK. But can you just talk briefly about the importance of connecting with nature for our own health? Because often medicine can be, the softer side of it can be disregarded. We can often kind of prefer medical invention or intervention or pills, but seldom do we think going out walking barefoot in the soil or just, you know, looking at a beautiful tree and taking a moment to appreciate it can be so good for our health.
0: Absolutely. And you're so right. People don't realise, and I don't think many doctors even realise the power of nature to heal, um, it's starting to get more popular and understood. Um, there's a doctor called Dr Lucy Loveday in, in uh, Devon and she's, um, she's been, I think she's piloting some sort of scheme to help uh, the government to um, provide some sort of initiative to help with green prescriptions where people can actually harness the power of nature for wellbeing being. And, you know, there's so much about nature that lifts our spirits and it's not just psychological, it's also physical. You know, we, we have evolved to be with nature pretty much all the time. And it's only been relatively recently that we've built cities and um, metropolises that have separated us from nature. And so we are programmed to respond to nature you know I've talked to you guys before about fractals in nature these um, self-repeating patterns in nature that occur you know on trees leaves in our own bodies things in nature often have these fractal recurring patterns that our brains find very soothing when we build things we tend to build them in a very angular way because it's more cost effective because it makes a lot more sense in terms of engineering um, but it's not so good for our body and mind. I mean, studies are now showing the benefits and it's something that the Japanese have known for a very long time with their forest bathing habits. And it's potentially something that could really help support our immune system. There was a study or two studies that I read around um, forest bathing or at least walking in nature and how it can potentially encourage us to make more natural killer cells, which are our body's way of um, fighting um you know b- uh, bacteria or viruses that could potentially be harmful to us and uh, even in hospital there was a study recently that i read that showed that patients who had access to a window and some greenery pretend- tended to fare better and tended to recover more quickly than the patients that didn't have a view of nature and it can even work just looking at a picture of nature now, there's a reason why I think we all love nature documentaries. We've got David Attenborough's soothing voice, but we've also got the images of nature that we want to connect back with, that we feel an affinity to. So, yeah, there are so many ways in which we can enjoy it, even if we don't live near a forest or a beach, even if we live maybe just near a park, we can get those benefits wherever we're at. And if you're really desperate, you can put some something you know natural onto a screensaver or you know, a big um, image that you can look at from your desk, uh, house plans plants, anything like that to bring you that little bit closer to nature.
1: I love that, Gemma. Yeah, really, really do. Uh, Okay, uh, like we're total big believers in nature and, you know, obviously, you know, swimming in the sea and spending so much time in it, like I, I just know the healing capacity for, but there's like huge, there's more and more science into it now, isn't there, in terms of it reducing cortisol levels and increasing increasing what's that other hormone called serotonin and all those good hormones and reducing the bad ones and yeah Yeah. we intuitively know it but then it's it's almost like many of us just need the data of why you know you need the science to kind of go oh this is why you need to do it and I, i think the idea of a green prescription is a great idea because it's you know in in an age today where so many of us are stressed a lot of the time
0: yeah, I think you're right. And it's also a way of being able to channel that part of ourselves that can slow down. Um, you know, years prior to now, you know, we we were able to spend a lot more time outdoors. We were able to not be a contactable all the time. You know, we had a lot of time in which to just be. And I think that that's been taken away through the benefits of technology and returning to nature is another way that we can actually have that sort of space and time for ourselves and to reconnect with what's important to us. And yeah, there is some science behind it. Um, And there are a few interesting small studies on the benefits of grounding as well, which I really enjoyed reading, um, based on the fact that they're essentially, it's essentially a way of um, helping to sort of um, transfer electrons from the ground to the body, um, much like you'd see in an electrical circuit. Um, Our bodies can then use those electrons. Electrons for beneficial purposes for reducing inflammation and oxidative stress. Just as healthy foods are uh, electron donators and antioxidants, so too can the ground be. So too can a beach or um, a grassy turf or anything like that. It can be really helpful for us.
1: Well, did they? Because because I, I was literally flicking through your book earlier and I was reading about free radicals and that free radicals are essentially you know, cells that are missing an electron and then food can complement that electron. You described it as pins, but a pinball bouncing around a pinball machine. And we can get the same kind of loose electrons to stop free, to stop free radicals and oxidative stress, the damage of oxidative stress by walking on the ground or spending time in nature as well. Is that what you're saying from grounding?
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying, and and I would say, I mean, that free radicals are not actually cells; they are ionized oxygen, uh, and it's in, it's part of our biological processes. It's part of metabolism that they're created we can't do anything about that but we can donate electrons so that they become you know chilled out basically they're not bouncing around like crazy they they can uh, they can relax and you can reduce your oxidative stress that way and absolutely you're right it's the same benefits um, through being in nature it hasn't been quantified like I can't tell you well you get this many electrons um, but we know that metabolic processes do produce these um, positively charged oxygen species and that they are um, counteracted by antioxidant rich foods and so yeah, you know, if we look at the electrons that we get from grounding then it's my assumption that they'd have the same benefits.
1: Amazing. Amazing. One thing that I'm super interested in, and it's kind of, it's a kind of related topic and kind of not at all. But I think possibly one of the reasons that we're not spending so much time in nature is because of technology. And one one thing I'm very interested in now is our own individual relationships with phones and technology. And I think we're at a stage now where very often our own technology is becoming the master and we are becoming the servant of it. And I wonder, you being a doctor, you must see Illnesses possibly that are related to technology and social media and people's relationships with phones. And I'd love to know what do you see on a daily basis and what are your thoughts with this in terms of health and how, you know, how you deal with technology or how we might better deal with technology as individuals.
0: Yeah, I definitely see in my clinic people who are suffering from being over available, I think is the main thing, especially in the workplace, not being able to create boundaries between their emails and their messages and uh their, their personal life, their private life. And sometimes in the pandemic uh, that happened last year and in this year, it's continued that, that um, trajectory because people are expected to be available all the time. And there's no mental space. There's no switch off time. I think that what I'm worried most about is the mental health of our children and teenagers. We are seeing so much more self-harm than we ever used to. And... I don't think it's just a conscious way of saying, or they're just comparing themselves to other people. I think that there's a lot of media messaging around, you know, having to have the perfect body or having to have the perfect life. Um, And, you know, you used to only have access to that if you bought a magazine, but now it's literally there every time you touch your phone which you probably would do many hundreds of times a day. And so it is really worrying how it can affect our children. And they are the first generation that has known this from a very young age. Like we've never had a generation where they've been constantly surrounded by tech. Um, Yes, it does bother me. It's hard to know what the solutions are. I think really trying to help them have a healthy relationship, whatever that means, with tech. Leading by example. So, you know, if our kids are always seeing us on our phones, it's quite hard for them to think that it's not that big a deal and that they wouldn't want one. Of course, they would. Um, but also, it's about thinking: is this is this making me feel good? Like just taking an inventory of the emotions that you're feeling as you're looking at your technology. Like, are you doing something? useful are you providing something for somebody? Are you contributing to the well-being of this planet by using this technology? and sometimes you really are you know especially when it comes to social media. I'd suggest perhaps creating content before you scroll <laughs> so that you feel like you've done something productive before you're wasting you know time sort of scrolling through things. Um, and maybe also to keeping technology out of the bedroom. I know a lot of people talk about that. I personally do that. I keep my phone charging. Um, in the hallway rather than in the bedroom. Um, But yeah, I think that there are no easy answers because we're in this new paradigm and we have to respond and adapt. And it's not even as if we would necessarily want to turn back the clock, but we have to try and use what we have um, in a way that's protecting our mental health and be vigilant for our kids as well, because they have no way of really kind of um, moderating that because it's all they've ever known. And what also worries me is that our frontal lobes are not completely developed in our teenage years, especially for boys. Um, And for girls, I think generally, I know this is a big generalisation, but I think the social side of things and social media is probably more impactful for girls too. So it's just about being really vigilant and keeping those lines of communication open with our children.
1: That's something that I definitely, I'm a bit frightened of. Like, may, my daughter now is 10 and, you know, dad, can I get a mobile phone? Dad, can I get a mobile phone? And it's something like, wow, it just frightens me, really frightens me. But I think, as you said, I think it's very sensible that, you know, possibly it's not pushing back against so it's how we can manage it and develop a healthy relationship with it. There was, there was one thing I read or I was listening to last night where I was talking about the Dunbar number that, uh, this was a study that said that we could only manage about 150 relationships, you know, that that's the maximum that us as humans can manage where social media, it's kind of blurred that word between what is a friend, what is not a friend and relationships and not relationships. And I thought that was a really interesting, anyway. that
0: is that's really interesting because as well, many people use social media as a way of connecting and that's a great way of connecting and getting to know new people and making friends. But it's also a really strange phenomenon Like you could post a photograph and anyone, uh, uh, out of hundreds or thousands of people could screenshot it and keep it you know and it's just it's sort of where where does your private life go you know it's a bit like brave new world oldest huxley sort of territory um you know how much do you share how much do you want to share um yeah it's a tough one and i know that you guys you know you have created such an amazing community through using this incredible technology so we know that there are positive sort of sides to it as well don't we
1: Oh, yeah. absolutely. And, and it's then we constant, are aware of our It's own. a constant balancing act, you know. It's something that I constantly have to reestablish the boundaries of that relationship. When is it appropriate to take my phone out? Am I doing this for myself or am I doing this for social media? And kind of constantly having to face those hard questions with myself Steve are you doing this for yourself are you doing this to try to look good you know and having to be more honest so it's yeah it's a it's a work in progress continuously Yeah, maybe. I think um, the same I, is
0: true for all of us the same is true for all of us I can't pretend to be above you know social media like I, I'm obviously checking it a relatively large amount of time because it's my passion to share this message and so I'm on there most days you know um, but it actually did me really the world of good coming off it I came off for about maybe three weeks or so last summer, um, which was, I found it really, I I found it really restorative. And I thought, oh gosh, that's, I didn't expect to find it so freeing. And, you know, that was, that was interesting. So uh, maybe at some stage, that's something that you gentlemen might consider. Who knows? Oh, I like Great that.
1: one. There's, you planted a seed. Oh, there uh, go. Gemma, you're amazing. You're really, really are. you're wonderful. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Uh, but, and I, I think there's something so nourishing about talking to you. I feel like I'm just getting bathed in this wonderful, nourishing, nurturing gem uh, energy, wise <laughs> energy. So thank you. Oh, yeah.
0: oh, thank yes. you. Oh bless you. Well, I love talking to you. I get I get the excited um, energy from your incredible, um, just your zest for life. You know. I, I love hearing you both talk. I love hearing you both kind of riffing off each other. Um, yeah, you've, you you just give so much to the world. So I really appreciate having this chance to chat. Ah, you
1: really great. And Gemma, you have a new book out uh, that has been a bestseller and it's called, what do you call it? You call it plant-based? I have it it's called there. The there Plant Power Doctor. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember, sorry.
0: <laughs> it's fine, it's fine. You're forgiven. The Plant Power Doctor. Um, yeah, and it's... It's, uh, it's basically a one-stop shop for people if they want to know more about the science of how plants can help heal the body from the inside out. Um, all the science is in there and there's chapters on stuff like heart disease and cancer and diabetes and immune health and uh, skin health and plant-based approaches for all ages and you got all the recipes i've tried to make it so simple i think a lot of medical texts can feel a little bit overwhelming um but what i wanted for this was people to be able to flick through it have it on a coffee table have it in the kitchen um look up the references if they're interested if they're a bit geeky like me. They can look up every single reference, which I've put on my website by chapter and by sentence. There's nearly 600 of them. But if you're not particularly interested in those, you can just look at the pictures. We've got colour illustrations, photographs, recipes. And yeah, it's it's hopefully something that anybody can, can pick up and
1: enjoy. Genuinely, uh, your book is really relatable. Like I remember when you were going through the writing process, you talked about, I think I was telling you, I was reading one of Michael Greger's books at the Times. And he's got incredible books. They're just like, there's so much words in it and there's so much content. It's completely overwhelming. And and you would kind of said, yeah, I like I, I, his content is amazing. I want to make something that's much more digestible and much more accessible. And I was just flicking through your book there. And it's so, like, I really, I got drawn into, I was reading about oxidative stress. I was reading about free radicals. Me and Stephen were discussing men's health and hormones. Uh, (laughs) And it really is very relatable. So you've done a fantastic job, genuinely. And the colours are very pretty of the paper. I did actually really like them.
0: You noticed that. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah. (laughs) It's all all part of trying to draw people in, you know, entice them to the plants. So thank you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well done. It's great. But thanks so much, Gemma. You're fabulous. Really appreciate you taking the time. And I really look forward to seeing you and Richard soon.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. I've really loved it.
1: Sitting here now after that conversation, I feel really nourished. I feel kind of calm and almost like in a weird way, way, I was just bathed in nourishing feminine energy. Yeah, I always find Gemma just, she's, she's, just, she's wholesome. Yeah, she really I'm is. That sure. was a wholesome conversation. I feel inspired and I feel hopeful for the planet and life at large and for this afternoon. Anyway, thank you for listening. We are most grateful for your attention because, yeah, without you, there's no point in doing this. So thank you. Yeah, but also it's a nice excuse to have conversations too. So With cool people. Yeah, with yeah, really cool yeah, people. Really. Anyway. Keep uh, letting us know feedback on social media, what you're finding. Let us know any guests you'd like to have in the future. And we, most we cre- important. We created an email account as well. If you want to email us, it's called podcast at pair.ie, I believe, is that right? Steve? Podcasts. Podcasts That's at pair.e. It's one or the other. You could send it to both of them, but we'd love your feedback if you have any. Anyway, wishing you a lovely day. We're most grateful. Sending lots of love. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.